it is Easter and the tomb is empty. You can see it for yourselves. Um, for those that have gone to Israel, you go into Jerusalem, walk out the old city, there's a, there's a graveyard and where they believe Jesus was buried, that's what it looks like. Now, if we go inside, uh, there's nobody in there. There's nobody in there, man. It's empty. It's empty. And um, we're going to take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, uh, starting at verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul writing. Um, listen, man, I, I don't know where you're at today spiritually, um, and that's okay. Because uh, the disciples, well, we'll talk more about that in a few moments, but um, um, Jesus Christ is alive and the good news is presented right here. If you ever want to know what the gospel's all about, you can go to 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 1, let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important. So if you want to know what's most important, friend, in life, this is it right here. Paul gives us a tip. He gives us some insight. This is most important, what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. We were singing about that, right? Yeah. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Now, you may be here this morning and you, you know, you said, you know, bizbag on the resurrection of Christ. That doesn't mean anything to me. Uh, I don't think he came out of the tomb and that's okay. Lee Strobel was an atheist. He was the legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. He wrote that if we could cross-examine, of course, he put his faith in Christ when he started examining the resurrection, the facts of the resurrection, it was indisputable. And so he writes, if we could cross-examine for only 15 minutes each of the witnesses who personally encountered the resurrected Jesus, it would add up to more than 129 hours of testimony. And he concluded, who could possibly walk away unconvinced? And so if you don't believe it, do some research, man. Do your homework. We challenge you, because everybody who does, they realize it is true. Jesus is not in the grave. In fact, in John eleven twenty nine, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he proved it by rising out of the grave. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then you can lean on every other promise he made. Lee Grady, who is a uh, Christian author, speaker, puts it this way, there are Mountains of evidence for us to ponder when we consider the resurrection. The huge stone on Jesus' tomb was miraculously moved, probably weighed one to two tons. 
The Roman seal on the grave was broken. Jesus' grave clothes were left behind. And the Roman guards disappeared. Witnesses heard Jesus talk after he was raised. And some of them, like the Apostle Thomas, touched his nail scars. But perhaps the greatest evidence of Jesus' resurrection is not that hundreds of people in the first century saw him, but that they were willing to be jailed, stoned, thrown into arenas with savage animals, or burned alive because they would not renounce their belief in Jesus Christ. Almost all of the early disciples became martyrs. There are many religions in the world, but Christianity is the only one whose founder was raised from the dead. Confucius started Confucianism, but he died in 479 B.C. Buddha started Buddhism, but he died somewhere around 483 B.C. Muhammad started the Islamic faith, but he died in A.D. 632. Joseph Smith started the Mormon religion, but he died in 1844. In the case of Christianity, Jesus Christ actually predicted before his death that he would be crucified, killed, and buried, and then raised to life. And that's exactly what happened. Never underestimate the power of the resurrection of Jesus. So, just some food for thought, right? We settle it. Um, we believe when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we believe that he went to the cross, he paid for our sin debt. Three days later, he came out. Things have never been the same because God is definitely on the move. Yeah. Those of you that are here, hopefully you received your outline this morning. And uh, if you don't have a pen, you're in trouble. <laughs> no, you'll make it. You'll survive. Those of you online, you can go to Life Church webpage or the Facebook page, lifechurchmh.com, and uh, definitely... Uh, pull it up so you can have fun at home as well. Dan Mazur. Let's talk about him. In fact, let's pull up the map where Mount Everest is because that's where we're going the next few moments. Uh, you can see uh, China, and here's Mount Everest right here, 29,000 feet up in the air. And um, let's take a look at Mount Everest, because there you go. And some of you here today, I know it's been your life goal to go there and reach the summit. Uh, we're, we'll, we'll talk about that. And uh, maybe after today, you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to start training. Good, man. We'll celebrate that with you. Anyway, Dan Mazur considered himself fortunate. He was uh, you know, really considered crazy by some other climbers after they heard what he had done. He stood within a two-hour hike of the summit of Mount Everest, a thousand feet from realizing his lifelong dream. Every year, the fittest adventures on the earth set their sights on the 29,000-foot peak and every year, some die trying. The top of Everest isn't known for its hospitality. Climbers call the realm above 26,000 feet the death zone. There's a reason for that. 
Temperatures hover below zero. Sudden blizzards stir blinding snow coming out of nowhere. The atmosphere is oxygen starved. There's dead bodies that dot the mountaintop as you make that climb. Just reminding the climbers it's dangerous. A British climber, in fact, had died 10 days prior to Mazur's attempt. Think about this. 40 climbers who could have helped save this man's life chose not to. They passed him on the way to the summit because that was their goal. You see, Everest can be cruel. Life can be cruel. Some of you are facing some challenges right now in life. You feel like you're climbing Mount Everest. Well, still, Mazur felt fortunate. He and two of his colleagues were within eyesight of the top. Years of planning, six weeks of climbing. Think about that. That's a long time. And now it's 7.30 in the morning on May 25th, 2006. The air was still, the morning sun was brilliant, and man, they had high hopes of reaching the top. It was within their reach. And that's when a flash of color caught Mazer's eye. It was a bit of a yellow fabric on the ridge top. His first thought was, well, somebody's camping up there. <laughs> Not true, because he soon saw that it was a person. It was a man dangerously perched on an 8,000-foot razor-edge rock. His gloves were off. His jacket was unzipped. His hands were exposed. You see, oxygen deprivation can swell the brain, and you start hallucinating. That's what was going on with this guy. Mazur knew this man had no idea where he was. So he walked toward him and called out, Can you tell me your name? Yes, the man answered, sounding pleased with himself. My name is Lincoln Hall. Well, Mazur was shocked. He was shocked because he recognized that name. In fact, 12 hours earlier, he had heard on the news that Lincoln Hall is dead on the mountain. His team has left his body on the slope. And yet after spending the night in 20 below chill and oxygen stingy air, Lincoln Hall was still alive. Mazur was faced with, it's a miracle. It's a miracle Hall's still alive. He's still breathing. But Mazur also faced a decision, a choice. A rescue attempt, he knew, had profound risks. The descent was already treacherous on its own, but even more so with the dead weight of a dying man. Besides, how would they know for sure that Hall would survive the rescue? Nobody knew. He could die on the way down. And so these three climbers talked it over. They realized that if they went to rescue Hall, they would sacrifice the top of reaching Everest. And so they had a decision to make. They had to choose to abandon their dream or abandon Lincoln Hall. What would you do? Well, they chose to abandon their dream. The three turned their backs on the peak and inched their way down the mountain. And their decision to save Hall's life stirs a great question, doesn't it? We kind of already started that. Would I do the same? 
man? Would I turn my back on the summit to rescue a dying man? Well, Lincoln Hall survived the trip down Mount Everest, thanks to Dan Mazur. He lived to be reunited with his wife and his two kids. A TV reporter asked Lincoln's wife what she thought of the rescuers, the men who sur surrendered their summit to save her husband's life, and she tried to answer. But the words were stuck in her throat. And after several moments, tear-filled eyes, she said, well, there's one amazing human being and the other men with him. The world needs more people like that. May we be numbered with them, huh? You see, Lincoln Hall was dying on Mount Everest, and Dan Mazur and his team decided, we're going to go rescue him. Listen, friends, you and I, every single person watching and here today, man, we were dying spiritually. You could call it on the mountain of life, man. We were spiritually dead. We were without hope. And Jesus made a decision. He made a choice to rescue mankind. In fact, Luke 19 says, 19.10 says, Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. He was on a mission. And to think about the love, you know, just like Lincoln Hall's wife, man, she was amazed at Dan Mazur's love and courage that he displayed for her husband. He didn't even know this dude. And yet we have a loving Heavenly Father who sent his son on a mission to travel up Mount Everest to rescue you and me when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. What a day. And that's why we celebrate today. And you and I, not only like Dan Mazur, we have decisions that we have to make on a daily basis. Maybe not rescuing somebody at Mount Everest, but we too have decisions to make on how we're going to live our lives in our homes, at work with our colleagues, in school with our friends, even at church with fellow followers of Christ. How am I going to live? What decisions am I going to make? Well, Jesus kind of gives us an idea in Matthew 16, 24. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. There you go. That should be our life mission, to imitate Christ, to follow after him. So here's the choice we have to make. Am I going to put God first in my life, or am I going to keep myself first in my life? It's that simple. Simply, we have to make that choice every single day. Who am I going to live for, me or God? And in this morning's talk, hopefully, we'll come away with thinking, you know what? I've messed up. I've made some bad choices, but God never gives up on me. So let's go to John 21. As we dig into something true. John 21. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other disciples. No names with them. 
And Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. What do the other guys say? We're going to join you, man. We like fishing too. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reality that we have that, Jesus, you are alive. You've come to rescue each one of us. And today, Lord, make your word just jump out at us. Will you do that, Lord? You know each person in this building watching online. You know what they're going through. You know every detail about their lives. And so, Lord, show up big in all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. We've all sinned. We all hide in bushes. You go back to Adam and Eve. We heard, you know, Jay Sigurd last Sunday talking a little bit about creation. Adam and Eve sinned, and what are the first thing they do? They went, on, they went hiding on God. <laughs> they said, we're going to play hide and seek with God. But you know what? God showed up, and he found them, right? He did. He had a face-to-face conversation with them. But that's how it is in life, man. We mess up, and we kind of avoid contact with God. You know, we kind of go hiding in the bushes, thinking that God's not going to find us. And we fear failure, man. We think, man, I've messed up so many times. God's got to say, you know what? It's over, man. It's over. Well, everybody's experienced failures of some kind in their lives, haven't we? In fact, um, there's a book called The Incomplete Book of Failures. It's the official handbook of the terribly good club of Great Britain. Well, they printed the books, but they forgot to print the first two pages. So they had it later. Even the book was a failure. That should make all of us feel good today, you know? (laughs) You're not the only one. We've all messed up. And um, we kind of hyper-focus on all of our failures and mistakes we've made in life. It's like they're always in front of us, you know, full screen ahead. And that was kind of what happened with Jesus' disciples as well. You know, when he was crucified, they kind of ran for the hills because they thought, man, this, we wasted our time these last three years. Wasn't true. In fact, in Matthew 26, 31, Jesus told them, tonight all of you will desert me. And when Peter heard it, of course, he, you know, Peter, knowing Peter, he was pretty indignant by that, and he passionately objected to it. No way, Lord, not me. And Jesus kind of broke into that conversation. And in verse 34, he said, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times that you even know me. And Peter doubled down on his commitment. No way. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples, man, they chimed in and said, yeah, man, we'll stick with you. Well, one of the main reasons the disciples' confidence kind of drifted away there was because of the failure they sensed after deserting Jesus, some even denying him. In fact, let's take a look at a clock down, countdown clock. Um, if, if you were a, a disciple, you had been hanging with Jesus for three years, and if you listened to the conversations that he had, he always said, hey guys, I'm going to Jerusalem, 
I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be in the grave for three days, and on the third day, I'm coming out. Don't you think the memo would have spread to the disciples to have the countdown clock in hand as they stood in the cemetery on Sunday morning? Right? 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, they're all there, man. And all of a sudden, the stone is moved out and Jesus shows up. Man, we knew you were going to do that. Didn't it happen. Nobody was there. Nobody had the countdown clock, man. Would you put a little star on a disciple's heart, man? You guys are so brave and courageous, so full of faith, right? Didn't happen that way. Nobody showed up. So you can imagine the fact is that three days after Jesus was crucified, everybody thought Jesus was a failure. Everybody that was tracking the disciples, those that put their faith in Christ, they said, man, what a mistake we made. Jesus failed, we failed in following him. And Peter, the disciple, knew all about failure. Man, he failed to walk on water. He started out, but he kind of crashed and burned. He failed when he suggested building a memorial on the Mount of Transfiguration when Moses and Elijah appeared. He failed when he refused to allow Jesus to wash his feet. He failed to stand up for Jesus during the trial of Herod. He failed to stand at Jesus with Jesus at the foot of the cross when... He was dying, and Peter, man, he just kind of messed up every time he had an opportunity. I mean, failure seemed to follow him all the days of his life. Well, at least for this season. But you know what's cool? What I think is cool in the Bible is that the Bible is full of people who failed. You start reading the Bible, and you're going to find out there's no perfect person in the Bible. There's a lot of mistakes made. There's a lot of failures. And that tells us a couple things about the Bible. First of all, God wrote it because if you and I wrote it, we would have sanitized it, right? I mean, that's what our culture's doing today. They're sanitizing all the corruption, right? They don't want you to know about it. Well, not only did God write it, but he gives the grace to be restored, you're going to see that in just a moment. Following Peter's dismal disloyalty during the trials, man, he shattered. He was shattered with guilt and shame. And early on that Sunday morning, when the stone was rolled away, and the ladies came to treat Jesus' body with some more spices, well. They were instructed to go tell the disciples and Peter, Peter specifically, that Jesus had been risen from the grave and God made a concerted effort to go after Peter to let him know that he was still loved by God. And so it's possible, man, you've made some bad decisions. There's been some failures in your life and has your commitment to live for Christ kind of drifted away? It's not been the priority maybe it once was. Are you wondering if you ever could be used by God again because you've messed up so many times? 
Man, when we read John 20, what a great chapter, you know? Thomas doubting Thomas. Jesus shows up and said, here, touch me, man. Look at my scars. Look at the, look at the spear wound in my side. And then Jesus signs off in verse 29, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. That's you and me. We're blessed because we haven't seen Jesus in the flesh. Now, that would have been a great place to end the Gospel of John, but guess what? John adds one more chapter, 21. That's where we're at. It's messy. But here we go. Number one, Jesus on the move. Jesus is on the move. Later, Jesus appeared, verse 1, again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. What's interesting, you go down to verse 14 of this chapter and you find out this is the third time Jesus showed up with his disciples. He showed up once and twice, and evidently Peter's guilt and shame was so pervasive, Jesus had to come a third time. Do you know Jesus would have come a fourth time if necessary, right? And maybe you're kind of feeling that way. You know, Jesus came twice, man. It's, I'm going to go fishing. We know Jesus was on the road of Emmaus the day he rose from the dead. And he went after Thomas. If we look at Peter's life, Peter can mirror a lot of us here today, can he? Yeah. Peter crashed with regret. And Jesus cared so much about Peter, man. He went after him. Face to face. Peter made a lot of promises he didn't keep. Peter looked around at all the other disciples. I don't know about the rest of you guys. They may bail on you, Jesus, but I never will. Well, that didn't work too well for him. Maybe you've said something like that to Jesus. Jesus, I'll never abandon you. I'll never, my faith will never grow weak again. I'll never do that again, Jesus. And so many times, man, regret and shame just pops up like, too bad, man, it's too late. It's hopeless. And after Peter denied Jesus three times, the rooster crowed, Mark 14, 68, but Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said, and he went out to the entryway, and just then the rooster crowed. Take a look at this rooster. Maybe you've got a rooster in front of your face right now, man. He's crowing away, reminding you of all your mistakes and all your failures. He's scrolling through your past. That rooster haunted Peter. It haunted him. He couldn't shake the sound of that rooster, man. He could just strangle him. Ah! That's kind of what we want to do, don't we? Man, if we could just kill that rooster, man. Life will be so much better. Well, that's why John 21 was written, to give you and I encouragement, to know that it's not too late. Which leads us to number two, a boat called Regret, verse two and three. Several of the disciples were there, Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two other disciples. And Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. And they said, yeah, man, that's a good idea. We'll come too. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. Let's take a look at the uh, map 
of uh, where we're landing in this story. Um, so here's Jerusalem. This is where Jesus was crucified. Why aren't the disciples here, man? Because Jesus rose from the dead. You think they'd, you know, have a resurrection party and, hey, man, this is awesome. These guys take a bus all the way up to the Sea of Galilee right here. How far is that? 77 miles. You see, Peter wanted to get away from the cross because it exposed his mistakes and failures. He wanted to get away from that rooster, man, as far away as he could. And the easiest thing he thought of was doing something he was good at, and that was fishing. And so this morning, we have to know that there is a boat called regret because there's a lot of people living in that boat. They live their whole lives in that boat of regret, and they can't shake it. They go to a place where they remember they were successful, to erase the pain, the shame, the guilt. Can I tell you something? There is always a boat of regret waiting for you. It's always there. There's always a boat that's got your name on it, that has regret on it, to make you feel like that's the only place I can go to feel good about myself. Well, Peter went there. The Sea of Galilee, the disciples are in the boat. They're not in Jerusalem anymore. They've uh, packed a lunch, taken a two to three day walk to get to the Sea of Galilee. And this is where they land. It's kind of interesting. This is the same place where Jesus found Peter the first time, three years earlier. The same place. And Peter goes back three years to that founding. And guess what? <laughs> that boat of regret isn't by itself. Peter's life collapsed, and um, he went fishing. Figured he's going to get away from it all. And he had his chance at following Christ, and he figured, man, I blew it. It's over. It's too late. Craig Groeschel, pastors in Oklahoma, wrote this. Maybe your regret is you're living out your failure right now every day. It's not an outward failure. Nobody can see it. But inside, you ache from all those promises you kept making to yourself and to God. But then broke. You regret yesterday. You regret today. And tomorrow's not looking good. But... You need to remember this powerful truth. Failure is an event. It's not a person. If you think God uses only perfect people, then you haven't read the Bible. We always have choices, just like Dan Mazur did on Mount Everest. We all have choices. When we face failure, we can choose between two responses, remorse or repentance. We can go to God and confess that sin to him. And so whenever we fall down, whenever we make mistakes, man, it erodes our confidence in God. It's like God can't love me. And the enemy loves to come <laughs> whispering in the inside of our ears, man, you've let God down in yourself. Down. Don't bother going back to God. Don't even pray about it. God's fed up with you. You've blown it the last time, you see. We've all heard that little voice, haven't we? It's the same tape Satan uses. He's perfected it. 
because he's seen how well it works. We believe those lies. And I don't know if you ever believe those, those lies in your ears, the whisper like, I'll just go back to drinking again. I can't turn to God. What else do I have? Or I'll just go back to that bad relationship. I know this relationship harms me, but God doesn't want me, so what else can I do? Or I'll go back to my poor thoughts again. I can't ever seem to get a handle on that problem. God's tired of hearing my excuses by now. Or I'll go back to my old friends, man. Back to the place I used to hang out and to the people I used to run with. I'll go back to all that harmful stuff I used to do. I'll go back to what I know. Well, the disciples chose to go back to their old occupation. Back in 2002 at the Winter Olympics, the American skater Apollo Ono hoped to win his second gold medal in the men's 5,000-meter short track speed skating relay. And during one of the turns, one of the American skaters fell, but quickly got back into the race. But while that fall and recovery only took a few seconds, it essentially put the American team out of the race. There was no way they could win any medal. And when you watch the race, something interesting happened because the American team began to skate slower and slower during that race, eventually being lapped by the gold medal Canadians. Why slow down? Because they lost hope of winning. And that's how a lot of people live their lives, man. When they've lost hope, when we've lost hope, we just kind of slow down and think, man, it's hopeless for us. Why even try? You've felt it. I've felt it. It's easy to land there. And so here's a good question. How far can I go before God will not deal with me anymore? Maybe you can fill in, if I do fill in the blank, I've done this, and you can fill in the blank. How far can you go before God will say, I won't mess with you anymore. You're my child, and I won't mess with you anymore. It's over. You know something? Nobody knows the answer to that question. If you listen to the words of Corey Ten Boom, who um, was in a Nazi concentration camp during World War II, people and survive, people would ask her, Corey, how could you survive as a Christian in that concentration camp? How could you survive in such a place? How could you live? This was her answer. There is no pit so deep that the love of God is not deeper still. So how far can you go before God finally washes his hands? Get away from me, man. You've, you've gone too far. Remember Corey's words, there's no pit so deep that the love of God is not deeper still. Because no matter how far and whatever you've done, God never stops coming after you. Because God is on the move. Number three, we see in effect, verse four, at dawn Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see what he wa- who he was, and he called out, fellows, Have you caught any fish, professional fishermen? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right side of the boat and you'll get some. And so they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there was so many fish in it. 
Then the disciple Jesus loved, that's John who wrote this, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water and headed to shore. There is no public humiliation here. Jesus is not standing on the shore with a megaphone. Peter, you are a loser. That's why I'm here today. I'm just here to remind you, just like the rooster, man, you messed up. Well, since Peter denied Christ, something had to be settled between Jesus and Peter. And that's why Jesus was there. He comes after Peter, not waiting for Peter to make the first move. That's what I've realized in my relationship with the Lord. He's always coming after me. He's always tapping me on the shoulder. Man, I'm here. You know what you did? You know what you said? You know what you thought? You're right, Lord. Because the Lord wants that relationship to stay intact. That's why. You can run and hide, but God's grace is going to follow you. It's going to find you. We see it right here. And so... Jesus is on the move, and he is encouraging you and I to keep that relationship healthy and strong. C.S. Lewis, in the Screwtape Letters, put it this way, Satan's strategy, he gets Christians to become so preoccupied with their failures, from then on, the battle is won. You see that? Get you so preoccupied with all your failures and mistakes, man. And he keeps dumping on you, like, man, it's too late. And here's Jesus coming to the Sea of Galilee looking for Peter and the other dudes because he knows as men, as men, we tend not to deal with stuff in our lives. We just throw it into a suitcase, just keep throwing stuff in there, our failures, our mistakes, our sins, never dealing with them. And Jesus showed up because he's really reminding Peter, open the suitcase, put your sin on the table along with me. I'll forgive you. I'll extend grace to you. And so, when Jesus said, throw out your net on the right side, they, these guys, we did the right side, we did the left side, we did the front side, the back side, we didn't catch anything. Jesus is allowing failure. Why? He's allowing failure for a time because if the guys were catching fish and Jesus said, throw your net on the right side, they'd say, we're good, man. We got all the fish we need. We don't need your help. We're the professional fishermen. Jesus allows them to fish all night long, not catching anything. And then Jesus gives an assignment to the fish in the Sea of Galilee. You see that net over there? Boom, hit it hard. <laughs> Boom, hit it hard. And 153 fish said, here we go. <laughs> here we go, man. I don't know if you're a Dennis the Menace fan. There's a cartoon showing Dennis kneeling, saying his bedtime prayers one night. His hands are folded. He's looking up towards heaven. He's in his pajama. He's got his cowboy boots and hat on. And he says, Lord, I'm here to turn myself in. Anybody feel like Dennis? <laughs> uh, Peter kind of was like, yeah, that sounds familiar to me too, man. Thank you, Dennis, for reminding me. I need to go to Jesus. I do. And so that leads us 
to number four, Jesus serves hope to the hopeless. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. And so Simon Peter went aboard, dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net had not torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him who you are because they knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. It was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. And so when the disciples come to shore, Jesus is already cooking breakfast. He's got the fire going. He's got the fish and the bread going. Notice he didn't say, Peter, man, that was a great swim from the boat to the, to the shore, man. Great job. Uh, he doesn't chew Peter out, you know. Peter, I'm here to tell you, you're, you're a mess. No, he doesn't do that either. Um, he doesn't rebuke Peter for failing him. He simply says, Peter, join me for breakfast. Join me for breakfast, man. And Peter looked at that fire and reminded him that was the last, the last fire he saw. He had denied Jesus. And here's a fire cooking his breakfast. And so no lecture from Jesus to the disciples. You know, come on, guys, you were supposed to do better than that. You know, put a guilt trip on it. No, no rebuke. Just provision. Notice Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And here he's serving his men who failed him breakfast. You see the heart of God there. No, you know, bat hitting them over the head. Come on, guys, I made breakfast because I love you. And so they're sitting around this breakfast. Good morning. Come have breakfast with me. I'm everything you need. I'm here right now. I've got everything prepared. Would you like some breakfast? Do you see the grace extended there? And finally, number five, Jesus sinks Peter's failure because that's the way Jesus operates. He wants to have a meal with you. There's something special about that. So here's the thing, in a very practical way, you know, when we sit down for our meals, we can give thanks to Jesus for providing that food for us because he's there, he's our provider. It's a way of extending that gratitude. God, you are so good, you are so faithful, you've provided this food, thank you. Number five, Jesus sinks Peter's failure, verse 15. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, why are you asking me three times here? You know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. What's going on here is after Jesus fed the disciples and they had conversation, 
after they were done eating breakfast, it was kind of like Jesus put his hand on Peter's shoulder and said, Peter, let's go for a walk. And so you can see them walking on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is saying to Peter, basically, Peter, it's not too late for you. In essence, I know you denied me three times. I'm asking you three times, do you love me? I I know you love me. I know that. I know, Peter, that you're a work in progress. I'm not looking for perfection. Come on, you know? Come on, Peter. Jesus knew that all, you know, all those bold statements Peter was so good at, Peter really did love Jesus. But why did Jesus ask Peter three times? Because Jesus wanted Peter to put his confidence in God, not himself. You know, It's allowing God to live in, in and through your life. And so by one fighter, he says, I, Peter said, I don't know him. By another fighter, he says, Lord, I love you. By one charcoal fire, Peter denied Christ. By another charcoal fire, he was restored by Jesus. And it's interesting that Jesus didn't pound it out of Peter. Peter was open to receiving the forgiveness of Christ, asking for forgiveness, and allowing the love of Jesus to be poured into him. And so Jesus doesn't make Peter feel guilty. He doesn't humiliate him in front of the other disciples. He doesn't ask, are you sorry for what you did? Go run 10 laps, Peter. Make you, I want to make you feel bad, you know? Run around the Sea of Galilee a few times. Those are that, you know, that little promise to do better. Jesus simply says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? It's a good question. Did it work? Did that question work? I think it did because Peter never again denied Jesus Christ, for the rest of his life. Never did. Church tradition says that Peter actually was crucified upside down in Rome because he did not feel worthy to be crucified in the same position Jesus was. He was a martyr. He died for his faith in Christ. Although Peter realized, yeah, I I blew it in the past, but I'm going to end my life for the glory of God. I'm going to die strong. For Jesus Christ. And that's great news for all of us, isn't it? It really is. The thing we need to remind ourselves most is Jesus, God, our Heavenly Father, is not looking for perfection, but He's looking for that love that we have for Him. Because I'll tell you this perfection that leans into legalism, rules and regulations. But when we love Jesus, we realize how much He loves us, we respond to Him in love. And I'll tell you what, it is so liberating to live like that. I know Jesus loves me. I don't want to do anything to make him sad or grieve. So therefore, I am choosing, just like Dan Mazur did on Mount Everest, a choice, a decision. It's daily. I'm going to honor him with my life. And so, the great news, this is great news for all of us. It really is. The thing is that Jesus says to us, I know you've messed up. I know there's consequences to to those decisions that you've made in the past, but I want to walk with you through those consequences. 
That's what he wants to do. Now, is that the end? Nope. The last thing Jesus does is give Peter this command. Peter, take a long walk on a short pier. <laughs> no, he doesn't do that. He doesn't. That's not in the Bible. Um, thank goodness. What's he say in verse 19? Follow me. Follow me. Isn't that great? No, hey, you messed up, feel bad, guilty, shame. No, no, no. Follow me. Let's do this again, man. Let's reignite this relationship. Of, of all Peter's failures, we see, there's a basic challenge that Jesus gives back to Peter. Follow me. Follow me. It's not just a step. In the Greek, it literally means keep on following. Keep on following. Not only follow one day, but keep on following day after day. It means a consistent pursuit in that relationship with Christ. And so how did Peter let the rooster's echo dissipate from his mind? How did he let that go? Well, he believed he was forgiven and he was restored by Christ. How do you get rid of the rooster echo in your mind, friend? You can ask Jesus to forgive you, to restore you, and know that you are forgiven because Jesus doesn't lie. And continue your pursuit with Jesus Christ. Jesus paid it all on the cross. It's a free gift. Gwen Lewis, a young man from the United States, destroyed his life with drugs. He destroyed his relationships with his family members. And so he went to Ecuador and started a drug dealing operation. Finally, after some time, he was arrested. He spent months rotting in a rat-infested prison. A missionary was told about Gwen being in there, and so he decided to go visit him consistently. Started talking to him about Jesus. And over time, Gwen put his faith in Jesus Christ. And then the missionary was able to get him released from the prison and sent back to the United States. Gwen wrote a, a short book called Night Mirror in Paradise. This is what he writes. People sometimes ask me if I feel any guilt or remorse for my former life. The answer is that is absolutely not. I have been forgiven by Jesus Christ. I feel forgiven totally and completely. I am a new person. Part of that feeling is due to the missionary, Jerry Reed. He treated me like a new man even before I was. Never once did he hold me back. The love and respect I felt from him were genuine and better than I probably deserved. From him, I learned something about God's grace. And that goes a long way towards erasing any guilt that might have lingered in my life. What happened to Gwen Lewis, man, can happen for you. You see, Jesus walked out of the grave that first Easter, and he's ready to walk into your life this morning. He is. And so maybe you feel like Peter. Maybe you can identify with Peter, and you could say, man, I 
I, I realize that Jesus does love me. I mean, I can see myself on Mount Everest, man, dying spiritually. And Jesus coming after me. Yes, he did. And so you can say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I recognize that. There's failures, there's sins against you. I am a sinner. But also, I believe you died on the cross for my sins and that you rose on the third day. I do believe that. There's evidence for that. And so by faith, I receive you, Jesus, as my Savior. I'm placing my trust in you this morning. And you promised to do that, Lord, and I believe you. And I know you can't lie. You are my spiritual leader and my Savior. And my sins are forgiven because of the blood that you shed on the cross on that first Good Friday. So I will live for you, Lord, day by day, not in my strength, but through your Spirit's power living in me. And so, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for being number one in my life. And friend, if you've done that, there is a party going on in heaven right now because that's why Jesus came, because he wants to spend eternity with you. And maybe you're here as a follower of Christ and life has beaten you up and you've kind of strayed from that walk with him. You can simply reignite that relationship today by saying, Lord, forgive me for trying to do it on my own like Peter. You know, Guilt and shame have haunted me. But today, Lord, I'm believing that you can forgive me. You can restore me just like you did, Peter. Let's do it. All right? All right, man. All right. Listen, before we close out today, LifeChurchMH.com, there's a couple links. It's videos created by Christ for Christ, another one, you are loved as you are. I'd encourage you to go there and watch them. They're short. But they're to the point, man, to reinforce your decision that you made today. Father, thank you for the great love that you have for every human being. And you look at Peter and you could say, man, that dude messed up so many times there was no hope for him. But Lord, just like you went after Peter, you're coming after each one of us. Why? Because of your great love. Man, we thank you for it. And today, Easter 2020, we want to take full advantage of what you did on the cross that first Good Friday and, and coming out of that grave on the third day. That's why we're here celebrating Easter, Lord, because <laughs> you won. You were victorious over sin, death, and the grave. And we can too, as we put our trust in you. I pray, Lord, each person, watching online and here today, will have that renewed hope, man, that Jesus, you love us. You love me so much. You want to have a relationship with us. So thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.